This podcast has been underwritten by Cape Cod Healthcare because investing in the arts creates a healthier community. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast, a series of conversations with Cape Cod creatives. This project is a collaboration between the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod and Provincetown Community Television. Recorded here at the Night Owl Recording Studio at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in Yarmouth. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, the Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Today, we're here talking to David Keene, Executive Director of the Katuit Center for the Arts. David is here to talk about his experience as an arts leader. David came to run the Katuit Center for the Arts over 10 years ago from a career overseeing the Classical Music Division at RCA Records. Founded in 1993, the Katuit Center for the Arts has grown into an award-winning and dynamic arts center offering art exhibits, live theater, concerts, classes, and much, much more. With a mission of being a welcoming hub for the arts on Cape Cod, no two days in David's shoes at the center are alike. Welcome, David. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're so excited. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. We're so excited to have David here today. Um, and Amy and I always ask each other, you know, what do we want to learn from our guest today? What do you want to learn today? I think we're probably going to want to learn the same thing. I want to learn I how do you do so much oh, in one no. in one center. It's it's incredible. I know it's so much. Um, I want to know. I I want to know that, and. I am always fascinated by the way David navigates, um, you know, his leadership role in our in our community in the arts world. So I want to know lessons learned. Like, what are some like oh. interesting little you know tidbits to help all of us in our own leadership um, adventures? So I'm excited to to do that. I'm glad you're not thinking of anything broad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I would, you can interpret these things the way you'd like. I know. So I have known David for, <clears throat> I don't know, probably like almost 10 years now. Almost 10 years. Yeah. I think it was when um, we met when we did a collaboration when you were at Hack. That's right. That's and right. it was the, um, yeah. the title. It, it was um, Seeing the Homeless. That's right. It, we worked, we collaborated uh, with your staff on working on a project with uh, kids that were in shelter at the mm-hmm. time, along with Cornell students who helped execute it, and we did it at your studio, and it was pretty amazing. It's one of the highlights of my career, actually, is, is yeah. participating in that. Yeah, me too. It was amazing. Yeah, and the, amazing. the uh, On so many levels, the, the mm-hmm. kids from Cornell that gave up their spring break, or not gave up, they chose to mm-hmm. do a service project yeah. during their spring break, and, mm-hmm. and uh, they spent it with us, and you guys with us, and mm-hmm. Um, I remember the the homeless kids came in and traced themselves on life size sheets of of oversized paper, and then they filled all of that in with mm-hmm. how they saw themselves, and it was so moving. It was it was amazing. It was very powerful, and I actually had my daughter uh, participate at the time, and she was probably like six, and you know it was it was really interesting that. To see and to to be reminded that we're all the same, we all share the same, you know, stuff, and um, and to see them all in a room together participating 
and connecting using the arts mm-hmm. to tell their own stories. It was really, it was powerful. So, um, and we created that big mural yep. with your staff. And I believe it's still, when I was at Hack, it was up there for years. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure it's still up there. And it was to represent the number mm-hmm. of homeless kids uh, in shelter on Cape Cod, which is... Yeah, many. there were all the shadows um, mm-hmm. interspersed with the... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was good. The so. kids' project. It was great. It was maybe the, the it might have been the first uh, collaboration. Yeah. That uh, that started that you know the first of of many. Yeah. And um, understanding the power of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love the overlap of the different sectors, right? And I think you and I, as arts leaders, have been continuing that um, those opportunities. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things I want to jump over to is David has a really interesting story on how he got to Cape Cod. And I feel like maybe a lot of people know it, but not a lot of people know it. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you find yourself on Cape Cod? Because I know that you lived in L.A. and you did all these cool things and you're a classical pianist. So tell us, how did you find, you know, Katuit? Yeah, so <laughs> it, it's um, it, it's an interesting <laughs> journey. Um, I was uh, living in L.A., and uh, my husband, who at the time was in Alan Trugman, um, who a lot of listeners will know, mm-hmm. uh, was working in the uh, costume business in film and television in L.A. And uh, through one of his colleagues, she and her husband became very close friends of ours, and they... Um, eventually moved to the Cape where her family had a home um, when their son was five. They decided to, it was time for a change. They they wanted to go east and we had never, never been to the Cape and came to visit them on Thanksgiving. And I believe this was, it was, I think the year before Bob, Hurricane Bob, whatever that year that was. And uh, we arrived late at night and they picked us up at the bus station and we were sleeping it's a it's a house on the water on Lewis Bay and we were in um the the matriarch's bedroom <laughs> and woke up in the morning and only saw water and it was an optical illusion where it felt like the house was moving mm. and i'll just never forget that november mm. sky and we uh, got in the car and drove up 6a to p town and uh, the beauty was just incredible. So anyway, long story short, um, about a year, maybe a year and a half after that, I had a, an, I received an offer to run the national sales team of the Warner Group classical labels in New York. And we also were kind of thinking about um, a change, and, and or Alan was as well, in terms of career, um, a lot of the creativity had gone out of um, the the television world in particular. You know, he mm. he his career was working on like the Donnie and Marie show and uh, Carol Burnett and uh, he's he, pretty close with Cher. Cher right? Yeah, there's a, there, <laughs> he's going to kill me. Yeah, he's a friend of Cher. Uh, and at any rate, the um, television by the mid late 80s was predominantly you know you go to Nordstrom's and buy jeans and a couple of shirts and and on set for you know ungodly hours Mm -hmm. Uh, so he was thinking you know maybe they maybe it would a change would be good and um, our friends who we came to visit um, 
uh, she convinced Alan that they should maybe think about getting into some business together. They were both uh, gourmet cooks, and they were thinking of maybe something like a silver palate. Uh, but um, the idea was that it would be a really easy commute uh, for me to be in New York and for Alan to be on the Cape. And um, um, on the map, it looked pretty close. You know, it didn't. <laughs> it, it didn't look like it would really be that big of a strain, to be honest with you. We also had three big dogs, um, and uh, but we decided to take the plunge and that it was a good opportunity. The, the job for me was a good opportunity. And he was working on um, a movie. I think it was the TV movie of Gypsy with Bette Midler that that he was working on. Um, and he needed to stay in L.A. until July. I moved on Valentine's Day. Um, of 1993. And I remember um, going to LAX. It was a beautiful, sunny February day and uh, landed at JFK. It was sleeting, you know, so it wasn't even pretty (laughs) winter. It was the ugliest, that ugly, awful winter. February. I knew two people in New York City. I had a cold corporate apartment on the Upper East Side for one month while I figured out, you know, where to live and what to do. And then meanwhile, I would rent a car every other weekend and drive to the Cape. Mm. And um, there are all these funny things that you remember in in Mm. times in your life. Uh, And what always flashes back is R.E.M.'s Automatic for the People album had come out. And that was uh, that whole period. You know, Mm. every song on that album was perfect. And it Mm. was my trip up and back. And I would look for a place to rent. And because of the dogs... No one would, we couldn't find anything to rent. So uh, the deadline was coming, uh, summer was approaching, and we ne- needed to find a place. And the the real estate agent that was looking for the rental, she said, you know, the rates are so low. It's like you, you could buy a house and your mortgage payment would be less than what you're looking to pay for rent. Now, you know, from college on, I'd only lived in New York and L.A., and so the idea of owning uh, a house was foreign, completely mm. foreign. So I ended up on a bank in a bank that looked like a house on a Sunday, Cape Cod <laughs> Five in Yarmouth, with fi- yeah. filling out li- like a, a mortgage application. And then the the next day in my office was um, approved. What approved? <laughs> and uh, uh, so we found the house that we still live in in Yarmouthport, a little ranch, and um, uh, and Alan he had never seen the house. We filmed it with a big old camcorder, and um, it was previously owned by a couple. They're the only occupants. She was a widow and needed to move. And so it was very – there were knickknacks everywhere and, like, this rose carpeting, and he just had a fit when in, in seeing the, uh, you know, just from the from yeah. the tape. And of course, now we absolutely love our little house. We've been in it for 25 years. It's in a beautiful place. So that's literally how we got to the Cape. Mm-hmm. So I was working in New York and um, we realized quickly that it's not an easy commute. Mm-hmm. And it was in, uh, Colgan Air was still flying mm-hmm. and I could have a, a coupon book where you just went to LaGuardia and if they had space you would hop on the plane they had three flights a day I never wanted to go back when uh, Sunday came and then it um, it got to the point where we realized that we really uh, needed to be together so uh, again we still had three big dogs and we had to find a place in New York 
to live. So we we ended up in Brooklyn, uh, in a, a beautiful ground floor of a flat, and were there together from about um, I think that was ninety five to two thousand. But we kept our house here. Wow, that was, I didn't realize how long you had done yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, in, 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 so 93 is when we, when we actually bought our house. So we would come up for vacations, and um, then in, in the year 2000, um, the, my company, um, I, by that time I was running the classical division of RCA Records in New York, and our company was about to merge with uh, the Sony Group, um, there were a lot of changes at the top of the company, and the classical division was folded into the popular division. Uh, we, the, the San Francisco Symphony that we signed and recorded lost their contract with RCA because it was too expensive. Um, and it was just a place where I could see the writing on the wall. Um, you know, I didn't want to be there. We had gone through a series of cuts on the staff. Uh, so we just said, um, what are we doing? You know, we, we we did our time in New York. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do we really want mm. in order to stay in New York? And then, you know, it's like um, to live in the village with three bedrooms and a, a, a car and an outdoor garden space and dog walkers and, you know, forget mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So we said we have this little house in a beautiful area. Let's just go figure it out. So we, in 2000, um, moved to the Cape full time. And I then worked as a consultant for the San Francisco Symphony, working on all of their in-house recordings and television projects. So um, because I had developed a relationship with them over the years at RCA, um, they had a grant to record all of the Mahler symphonies. Mm. And um, so they, we took a risk together to make a really exclusive, high-end, almost coffee table type package that was twice as expensive as a normal CD in a limited run, mm-hmm. um, and it worked. And the first one won a Grammy, and then um, it became a 10-year consulting gig. So that so while I was here, I was working with the San Francisco Symphony, and then I did a few projects with the Chicago Symphony and the Boston Pops. Um, but always in that time, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, at some point, um, I'm going to need to figure out what I'm going to do on the Cape. And, of course, your love for community theater helped ease the way for your position now, right? You're pretty vocal about uh, how you kind of came to How I came to that? Yeah. 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 I loved it. I loved it. And, uh, yeah, so when, when we were here and I was working with RCA, and I think that added a little bit to my, you know, um, elitism, if you will, we started meeting people and, um, and I would be at a party and uh, someone would say, oh, you know, I, I know you're, you're into the arts. I have a friend who's doing this um, musical theater at, you know, the X theater or Y theater. And um, we have extra tickets. You and Alan want to come. And I literally... I literally would say out loud, like verbatim, thank you, but there's not enough money in the world for me to see a community theater production of anything anywhere. <laughs> but I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. And or someone would um, uh, invite us to the symphony and said, you know, we have a really good regional orchestra here. We have a dynamic conductor. There's a new mm-hmm. conductor. There, he's creating all this great buzz. And we um, would you come as our guest this weekend? And again, I would say thank you, but there's not enough money in the world for me to hear the Cape Symphony if I want 
to hear uh, live symphonic music. I'll get in my car and drive five hours to New York. Boston symphony was barely good enough. You know, the only real music that happened was in New York. The only real theater was in New York. The only real art was in New York. And, um, and I, I was doing this routine um, at a, a party, and, and actually, I don't know if she knows it, but uh, Janine Perry, who's the executive director of Cape Rep, was actually in in the room somewhere else. And uh, someone I knew from New York happened to be there and overheard this and just walked right up into the, the I think, three or four of us and said, you're such an asshole, you know. It's like, <laughs> y- y- seriously. Yeah. It's like, you know, did you just say that? It's like, you know, think about this. Like, how lucky have you been? to have worked with these giants in the classical music world and this, you know, career that started off at Tower Records in L.A. I mean, you know, most people would dream of that. But that doesn't mean that people aren't talented wherever they live. And it doesn't mean that they don't need a platform where they can express themselves creatively. And it literally was at that moment, at that party, in that room, where those words, it was like the biggest epiphany I've ever had. And I just thought, there's so much to this. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what a, thank goodness that I have the capacity to still learn and to self-reflect and think very deeply about this. And- um, I and, love that it was someone in the arts that yeah. called you on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Like it's a real shift. Yeah. And uh, then when I, it was through um, my friend Elizabeth Garin, who was running the Cape Cod Foundation at the time, um, one of the, uh, one of her board members, Jim Hake, who uh, actually built the theater building that, that we use now, um, and the, uh, the grounds where the, Katua Center for the Arts exists, um, was thinking about a change in leadership and uh, they were interviewing. And so she said, I think you guys would uh, really hit it off and it would be a good match. So we started talking and had a lot um, of dreams and ideas about art and music in common. And I went to my first show at Katuit. I believe it was a concert performance of Porgy and Bess, and they had yeah, and and they had the the room kind of. Um, I don't think the traditional rake was in, but but it might have been. But I remember sitting there just like so many people, even today, mm-hmm. who I'd driven by for years and years, and I knew something was behind the little house on the front of Route 28, mm. and drove in and just thought, ah, oh, I feel like I'm in Tanglewood now. You know, mm, really, just yeah, with the architecture so and the the mm-hmm. barn, mm-hmm. and um, and then looking inside that the theater is like this is the coolest, coolest space. And, it really is, and there's so much opportunity mm-hmm. here. So I really, when I had the opportunity, um, well, it will be ten years in March um, that um, I'll celebrate my tenth anniversary. And looking back, it's just incredible what a community resource it is and how much we actually do that I think the general public don't really realize. And from the the ownership of the community is what makes the, the place um, have its soul and its heart. The the people who come there, um, especially the from the membership base, you know, they own it. They're they're mm-hmm. invested in it. They're proud of it. They advocate for it. 
um, is really gratifying. In, in talking to some of your members, um, first of all, they all say they love it because there's so much to do there. There's always some, and it's always different. It's a variety. They can try things. But also talking to your volunteers, they're long-term volunteers. Yeah. You know, uh, some of them predating when you arrived. And it's amazing to think about how many volunteer opportunities there are in the arts and that people stay. So there really is that investment in, in the organization. So how do, you, how do you keep that going? How do you keep people wanting to come back? Well, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought up the, the volunteer piece of it because it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It is a huge challenge because when people want to volunteer, they want to volunteer. And if you don't have the capacity to communicate with them on a regular basis or give them something to do, then you lose that uh, connection. And it's often very difficult if you have hundreds of volunteers that all want to usher for the shows, um, and we, it, it, you know, to to balance it and give everybody a chance um, is is really is really challenging. And then the same things where um, a lot of people will say, um, "I want to volunteer uh, to help build or paint a set," or "I want to volunteer." Um, with the lighting designer or the costume designer or things specific to a theater production. Um, the, the challenge there is that we often don't know what we need until a few hours or you know maybe the day before we need it. So what we did was a few years ago, and, and, and this is where organizations who find board members like this are, you know, so lucky. They're Mm -hmm. worth their weight in gold. We had a board member whose name was Pat Hurton, and um, she's living in the Worcester area now. But she decided to put together the volunteer program. And so she um, decided what protocol would take place. Um, she really developed the entire volunteer program. So her legacy lives on. Now when someone volunteers for us, they can sign up on the website. There's a very simple checklist of what kinds of things are you interested in. And then as soon as they're in the system, uh, Mark and Janet Wright, who run the volunteer program, uh, Mark is also on uh, the VP of our board, they call every person to say, thank you for signing up. Uh, We're really happy you're here. And once a month, another volunteer runs a volunteer orientation. So Mark and Janet say, you know, the next date will be X, Y, Z. And they're usually like, you know, a dozen new people um, who come and then they're introduced to the program. And on top of that, on the theater side, um, I started a, I implemented a program where the first production meeting that we have with all of the designers and the team to work on a theatrical production, we invite every volunteer who's on our volunteer list to sit in the room and observe. And then after the production meeting, I will then do a little spiel, uh, have a sign-up sheet for them, and they have a better understanding of what what it's like to go through the process. It all comes down to communication and value. And no matter, and you know, our actors are volunteers. You know, we are um, 100% um, non-professional theater, which just means that we we're not an equity house where we 
where we pay equity rates. We we try to thank our volunteer actors by giving them tickets to shows year round and um, compensate them when we can for uh, like gas reimbursement, you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But they're they're volunteers, and a lot of people who see shows, theatrical shows at the center, uh, don't realize that. I don't think they they understand that. Our board members are volunteers. So to to have an engaged volunteer who has a specific task to do that they understand clearly what it is and they understand how much value they bring to the organization, uh, that's what we try to do. And, and if I can say one more thing, yeah. I mean, and cut me off if I ramble about no, a subject I'm, too long. I'm but, like dying to hear more about this. But I think that um, the, the, the best thing that can happen is for the volunteers to start, who step up to become a lead volunteer in an area mm. so that the volunteers are running the volunteer program. And the burden doesn't all come back on the staff so that you know we can do the day-to-day of running the organization that we need to do. And an example of that is one of our volunteers um, decided that um, she loves our theatrical production so much that she formed a hospitality committee who their responsibility under her guidance, and she developed this program, was to basically throw the party after the closing show of a run, you know, and after we strike the set and all of that, uh, so that it's not a big potluck and the actors don't um, have to provide the food. And she has like five or six people who they set up the gallery, they they bring homemade food in from home, they bought a couple of griddles and they do what we now call, this is the greatest gala food ever, they make grilled cheese sandwiches in the gallery and cut them into <laughs> diagonals. And you know, it's better than any little fancy quiche that you've ever <laughs> seen at a party. Or slippery mushroom. That, or slippery <laughs> mushrooms. No slippery mushrooms. But 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 others others see this and you know yeah. that's how they want to to get back. And if you can have these you know lead volunteers that help you manage your volunteer program, uh, that's the best thing. But like everything else, it takes a lot of uh, initial commitment, time, and energy mm. to to get the the program up and running. You know, I was I, I was listening to um, when I heard the um, the podcast with with Chris McCarthy the mm. the point about the relationships the donor relationship you know um, conversation which is so true that everything is about relationships and they take years to develop yes that's on every level so every it's down level. to the volunteer level yeah the staff level the board level I sort of have a reputation among some people and certainly uh, the staff would say <laughs> it's like you got to say no sometimes, and because I, 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 we rarely say no. Mm. It, it, it's the the first the first response to any idea, even if I know it probably is something that we can't do for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, the the answer is, um, well, let's see if we can figure it out. Mm. And um, it, it, rather than just saying no to anything, because it, it, it's it's dismissive to mm-hmm. to just automatically you know say no. Now I can have a very good reason that I I can know that the return on the investment of the time that it will take from the organization or the staff means that it's probably something we can't do. 
I can know that our calendar simply won't allow it if it's mm-hmm. a space issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really try to be open to, um, you know, figuring something out. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that with uh, your programming too. You know, you're very open to kind of these new initiatives and kind of pushing the envelope. Yeah, we, we, yeah. we just did. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. I love it. Yeah, it's um, – I have I, to say, I was, I was at a, um, a get-together for these artists who were uh, launching um, a new project idea, and they were looking for funding and support. And I kind of accidentally was there, <laughs> which I was really happy yeah, I was there. And the artist, um, one of the artists, uh, Carla Kilstadt, um, said uh, when she was introducing David and um, he was give, making the Katuit Center for the Arts available for them to do this production, which we're actually interviewing them um, for the Creative Exchange oh, in awesome. the next few weeks. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, she said something that, just resonated with me. She said, you know, David allows um, an opportunity to really push the boundaries. He, mm-hmm. His audience and his supporters trust that he's going to, you know, provide something that's innovative. I mean, not everybody's going to love it. Yeah. And that's tough, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I thought what she said was so um, right on where you, you are providing kind of an opportunity for them to innovate um, and you're providing it to your supporters and your audiences to experience something new and different and they trust you how'd you build that it, and building yeah, off ahead. of what you're saying Julie I mean it, it isn't it how do you balance that so you have to I would think have like the blockbuster that pays for the innovation so how yeah, How do you build formula? that season? Yeah, tell us your secret. What's, what's your secret what's the formula? Secret <laughs> the, the, the secret, the secret formula <laughs> uh, is um, th- we have a we have a saying um, within our curatorial committee um, uh, that I hope no artists take offense by this because it the, the the idea of it is a very serious one. Which for for the the visual art that we put in our galleries. Um, when we're we're choosing the season, we say no sunsets or sailboats ever, mm-hmm. and 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 the the reason for that is really to to say that's not ex- really what we're saying because we do have that of course, yeah. Uh, but to really push the envelope and have a wide variety of of local artists, um, international artists, and work that is challenging, work that um, it, it is difficult sometimes mm-hmm. uh, with the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And to balance that, we, what, in terms of the gallery balance, uh, we try to have three or four open juried shows each year where anyone in all of the artists on the Cape and beyond can participate. And uh, so th- th- those tend to be uh, more popular themes. And then um, we, I, I do want to talk about uh, winter art a little bit later, mm-hmm. too, because that's another mm-hmm. uh, way of, of balancing and having all the, the kids in. Mm-hmm. When it comes to something like Black Inscription, uh, the, the piece we were, were referring to before, mm-hmm. um, it, it, I believe that is the kind of a piece that um, will rarely find an opportunity on the Cape to be presented. Agree. It mm-hmm. was it pushed every envelope. It was a one hour through composed piece that uh, blended 
classical music, electronic music, rock. Um, I heard one comment, uh, my friend Leah, after the show, wrote a note and said, uh, oh my gosh, if Philip Glass and Bjork had a baby, her name would be Carla Kilstedt. Um, and and the production itself, mm-hmm. the what it took in terms of projectors and the, the, the set, um, no one would have any idea of you know what that process is that that brought it through and mm-hmm. it's very challenging mm-hmm. it's it's hard for most people to hear a piece like that um and you know thank goodness we had full houses and people came and uh for the most part were just completely blown away you're always going to have uh people that are not receptive to something uh, out of the box or unusual and in terms of the uh, theater productions, we we try to balance by season. So to answer your question, Amy, the block we have to have the summer blockbuster. So we we know that you know that's the time that we do the Man of La Mancha or we do our cabarets and and whatnot. And then in the off seasons, we can take a little bit more of a risk. We've produced a few original uh, plays on the main stage theater. We've done a few uh, more classic plays like Of Mice and Men that we did last year that that was really well received. But in January, the audiences are, we know that they're going to be a, a, a little lighter. We also have our Black Box Theater, which is a 40-seat the room in the annex, which is the house right on the driveway on Route 28. And that gives us an opportunity to really be edgy, the prices are low. The room is amazing, and it's meant to be um, like a place for exploration and experimentation. Um, and we we recently promoted our box office manager Jason Mellon to be the artistic producer for the Black Box Theater. Um, af- once we get into 2021, I mean that's how far ahead uh, we're looking oh, at this point. Congratulations to Jason. Yeah. That's yeah. great. He's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. it'll be great. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's no magic bullet, and it's um, ulcer-inducing every year to try and make a decision <laughs> on the season. Mm-hmm. I try to engage as many people as possible, um, especially including the staff recently. We have mm-hmm. a series of meetings where um, everyone gets to give input as to what musicians, what special events, what theatrical productions people think we should be doing, and why. And at the end of the day, though, that that programming can't be done by a committee because everyone has a right. different opinion about it. We, we, had, we had an idea of next year what we really wanted to do for the, for the summer right. is in the middle of June to toward the end of July, um, we wanted to produce Hello Dolly, and we, we already had our Dolly, uh, it, which we don't often do, is a, a show specifically for one of our actors, but in this case, we did. And um, we were going to do Rent in for the, the uh, end of the uh, season. So, you know, both are extremely popular. We mm-hmm. felt, everyone felt that um, they would both draw audiences. Um, and we want to diversify uh, opportunities for our actors in, in particular on the mm-hmm. Cape. Um, so, you know, the, you, you, for rent, you have to. 
So, you know, we put a stake in the ground. We're going to do that. We were denied rights for both because, there, you know, there's a special tour coming up with Rent, Hello, Dolly. The Broadway tour is still going on. So we often can't do what we want. So then we come to the table and say, okay. okay. So we lost that. You know, what are some no ideas? Idea. Yeah. That's interesting. Huh? Yeah, yeah. The the rights issues are uh, really that that we get hamstrung often. You know, we still can't get rights for Chicago. You know, I'll, I'll probably be long gone before that will ever happen. <laughs> I only bring that up because our room was made for it. Oh yeah. It was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if there's any musical that it would. you know, yeah. And so the conversations have a lot to do with um, what what is the actor and director pool on the Cape? Um, can we? Uh, you mentioned something about lessons learned earlier. Yeah. A few years ago, um, uh, I was in, in my more competitive mode was like uh, when Billy Elliot became available, it's like, okay, we grabbed the rights because I wanted to be the first theater on the Cape to do Billy Elliot. You know, the, and it didn't matter that we were a community theater. We're going to be the first. And then after we got the rights, I woke up one morning and I'm like, we can't do Billy Elliot. <laughs> I mean, that's really risky on a community theater base. There are certain shows that, uh, that, that I think present huge challenges when you're not in the semi-professional uh, league. Uh, so we gave up the rights and you know, did something else. Mm -hmm. But those are the kinds of lessons that are learned. I learned a lesson mm -hmm. with uh, Grey Gardens we did in, in August um, many years ago, and Jackie Reeves uh, designed the most gorgeous set. Mm -hmm. And it was an incredible cast. And, and I thought because of the, um, the popularity of the documentary and the movie and, the, and then, of course, you know, the Kennedy connection here on the Cape. Um, but it was a little too weird for people. The, you know, in mm -hmm. August, we, we, I think, averaged about, you know, 100 people a night. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. I thought, I really thought that was a, a home run. And it had nothing to do with the quality of the show. Hmm. It was just a, a miscalculation. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. yeah. So I, I would like to know, uh, when we opened today, you were talking about your collaboration mm. with the Housing Assistance Corporation. And um, you also do some programs for at-risk youth. We talked to Joe Diggs mm -hmm. about doing that program. So there's so many levels of participation in the arts with your one organization. Um, can we talk a little bit about how how the arts really affect everyone in the community and how it can be uh, something that sparks a kid and maybe they have a different value of themselves or or even someone who has been in a more corporate job and they take a painting class. I mean, how 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 are we changing lives through the arts? I guess is my question. Another mm. another small little question yeah. for you, but <laughs> but just a discussion. I think you know when I think about the Katuit Center and. Um, like I said, just all the levels where people are involved. You know, someone who's never been on a stage is an usher, but they're mm -hmm. contributing. And that's really something, again, when I was talking to some of your members that I, I got from the experience of, of having your, your place there. Well, I, I often say when I'm speaking about the center that I, that I believe that the arts are as important to the health of a community as air and water and, the, and food. And, um, but how do you prove that? Mm -hmm. When you're um, 
when you believe that the 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 arts reflect uh, society, they nourish the soul. There is is such an important, um, almost intangible quality that really, without them, um, leave a world that I think most people wouldn't want to live in, wh- whether they know it or not. And I go back to when I was in the third grade, it was my um, elementary school music teacher who um, talked me into starting to take piano lessons and kind of, you know, gave a little push because I grew up on a farm in a family with a family that, um, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of um, art or music and it's not a, not a dig, mom. Just the way it was. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's yeah. just the way it was. And to, you know, to have someone who kind of pushes you because I wasn't the, you know, the sports person. Um, but then, you know, it, it ended up, you know, maybe um, saving my life in some way, you know, who knows, maybe that's extreme. But I always go back to uh, something that happened at the center years ago in the um, Arts Foundation Winter Art Program, one of the first years. um, And for people who don't know, um, each year uh, we do a program. uh, It used to be a program of the Arts Foundation. We're um, taking it over next year with support from the Arts Foundation. It's an art show where all of the there's a theme every year, and the work is all hung at four feet. Uh, It's designed for little kids. And then the goal is to have field trips for all the kids on the Cape to come to see a professionally docented art show, and then they do an art project. And it's um, it's it's really uh, incredible and heartwarming to watch. So, and it's in the winter, so it's in the you know freezing, dark, shortest days of the the year. And about seven or eight years ago, um, I was the only person on the campus. I was in the theater and just about to turn the lights off, and a, a car drove very slowly down the driveway to the back <laughs> of the parking lot, turned around, and slowed again. So I opened the door, and um, the it turned out to be a father and a mother and two kids. And the father um, said, you know, are, are you open? And I said, no, I'm sorry, we're open 10 to 4 if you come back tomorrow. And he said, oh, well, okay, my daughter was here today with her class, and she made us get in the car and drive down so she could show her brother what she had seen, and they had driven from Wellfleet to get to it. <laughs> so I t- said, please come in, and turned on all the lights, and I literally I stood in the box office with tears streaming. Mm. I'm going to cry like talking about it. I it know. is so emotional. And the way this little girl showed her brother the art that was so meaningful to her that day. And I left in the whole thing about the platform, creating the platform for others. I left that day thinking when we touch one person in this way, Mm -hmm. then we've fulfilled our mission. We've done our job. And it's, um, it was so beautiful and we see it, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we see it all the time. There to, to be a fly on the wall when people come into the gallery, especially to to look at work and and hear them talk about it and hear them uh, share with one another, it um it, it's it's just almost overwhelming sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
I was lucky enough to have a piece in, um, now I can't remember if it was last year. It was the year before. And I um, took advantage of going and talking to the students. That's and right. it was it's such curated. a great yeah. experience, yeah. you know, to have them come in and talk so in, intelligently about art. And mm-hmm. I, it's, uh, you know, a credit to the art educators in our area, too, because they mm-hmm. were... Yeah really thinking about what they were looking at and what they were asking. And I heard them, they were, um, you know, the docents were there, so they were talking about the other artwork. And it was really an incredible experience. To I've never really experienced that with um, students looking at work from local artists or my art. So mm-hmm. it was it was really a great opportunity to do that. And the difference between the groups by age, you know, the, the mm-hmm. first graders versus the, you know, when you get into junior high, you know, they're, <laughs> but, but yeah, <laughs> you know, they're, but I think you still, we still touch people, but the conversations mm-hmm. are so different and interesting mm-hmm. by the groups. And the, um, the kids always, uh, send these beautiful letters and books about their experience to Michelle Law, who's our, our mm-hmm. gallery manager, and to the Arts Foundation. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're yeah. they're they're yeah. they're wonderful. The photos are amazing, yeah. and the stories, and um, and it's always uh, there's always an unexpected kind of you know what the kid. I I always love asking Michelle, what did the kids, what were they drawn to this year, and it's always not what you think. You yeah. know, it's it might be a piece that you were like, really, you know, but the kids were all over mm-hmm. it. And um, to strike up those conversations when you're in third or fourth, fifth grade. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Yeah. And th- this year's uh, theme is heroes and villains. Uh, so I think both the artists and the mm-hmm. uh, kids will have a lot of a lot of fun with that. Mm-hmm. You know, on a um, since we're talking about kind of about the impact, I just spent some time with uh, a group of artists and arts leaders with the Americans for the Arts, and the big conversation was how do the arts impact kind of these important things that are going on in the world? You know, and climate change was was definitely in the forefront, especially last week. Um, and uh, so, you know, do you see the role, your role personally, professionally, as well as Katuit? Like, how, how do you kind of envision this as we navigate these kind of sticky times and complicated and confusing times? You know, where do you see Katuit Center kind of moving forward and, and participating in these discussions? If at all, right now, you know that's a that's a really good question, and we we've. Um, I feel like you've been doing like black inscription was clearly something about environmental issues in a very intense yes. and uh, somewhat com- complex way, um, yeah. but clearly with the partnerships that they had through that um, performance, that it's it's a message about you know, the oceans and, and what we don't see. Well, and, and you know, and I think um, there, it, it can be tricky because we, mm-hmm. we, this year, this past year, we hosted an exhibit by Sally Mavers that was very controversial mm-hmm. and it created a lot of, uh, uh, of publicity, both positive and negative. And, and uh, I went to great lengths to, to say that, you know, we have responsibilities to, uh, to be nonpartisan. In 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 how we speak about certainly the p- 
politics around the 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 world, but mm-hmm. artists cre- create what they're feeling, and you know, th- their um, we th- it's not a responsibility to dictate that, right. and and that opposing views who have equal artistic merit mm-hmm. are also shown and welcome at the anywhere at the center whether it's a whether it's a play mm-hmm. the subject matter of a play or visual art mm-hmm. um, that's not that that part of it is not our job mm-hmm. but the, the the platform and the quality I think are mm-hmm. our responsibility you know you may or may not know we're undertaking a huge capital leap right now we bought a gas yeah. station and a bakery and, um, right. but but there's a the, there are huge dreams that we have ahead and you know we're about to open the the, the gas station is going to be a pottery studio and I, I can't wait until people can drive down route 28 and see those two classrooms full of people sitting at potter's mm-hmm. wheels and um, it's going to be incredible. And we're not doing this because we uh, want to and we're, you know, so all that. You know, <laughs> it, it's uh, we're out of space. We don't right. have the capacity to. We're teaching mm-hmm. classes in an old, almost falling down barn with no bathroom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, we, we have a, a critical need mm-hmm. and we've done an analysis that shows if we can get the new campus done, then our dependence on philanthropy significantly reduces. Mm. Um, so that's our um, our challenge. And my, my in in terms of uh, uh, leadership with uh, challenging things, which in yeah. any capital campaign is mm-hmm. full of challenges. Mm-hmm. And my belief is that the advocacy of our plan is as important as uh, the fundraising piece of it. So I'm trying to convince mm-hmm. people who support us mm-hmm. or who even, you know, kind of like us at Stop and Shop or, you know, in the in out on the weekend at the park, anyone who they run into are supporters. I'm asking them to say, have you heard about what Katua's planning? It's it's going to be incredible. Have you seen the the renderings? The drawing is going to be, it's going to be transformative. It's amazing. I feel like I've had this conversation. Or, <laughs> or you can say, and I feel like I've repeated it. Good, <laughs> because the other way to have the conversation is: Have you heard what Katuit Center for the Arts is trying to do? Are they crazy? There's no way they're ever going to raise this much money or succeed in that. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. the in terms of the grassroots effort for. Um, we have a new ambassador committee where the entire job of those ambassadors is to do exactly what I just said. Yeah. It's it's the elevator speech to the public to say, this is a good thing. Is it going to be hard to get there? Yeah. But it's a really, really good thing. And just imagine if we can have it versus that's never going to happen. You know, that it, it's, right. it's, it's, a, it's a simple, simple, fundamental hugely important thing. It's that shift in your culture. Yeah. You've created mm-hmm. a culture that people want to do that. And I mean and it and it definitely resonates out into the public because I have repeated that. I was just yeah. having a conversation like can you believe like it's amazing he's done this like it's he's pushed it out. We we, we. not he. He. Every yeah, yeah, it's it's we. The Katuit Center. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and you have that strong it definitely does feel like a we. And um it, and I hear it over and over. People are really excited for what you're offering because we have seen it that other capital campaigns are really, really difficult. Yeah. 
it's not easy. So kudos to you for doing that. And, and where can people see mm. the plan so they can get excited and get involved? <laughs> so they can, uh, we have big giant posters mounted in the gallery. And we're actually, I think we should have a web page up with the renderings um, before Thanksgiving. I know that um, uh, Tracy Labonte, our development director, is working on that now mm. as we speak. So so exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And it just happened like, boom, yeah. you know? Like, I remember you had the opportunity for the land, and you are so good at laying it out there and being transparent about what your needs were for, yeah. you know, you and your board. Uh, putting it out there about what you guys wanted to do and accomplish. And so it's really amazing. So congratulations on Thank that. You. When do you think it will? Uh, I know the ceramic and uh, clay studio is opening soon. Mm-hmm. We, we will definitely be running classes in January, but we are hoping it's open by Thanksgiving. Well. Thank oh. you so much. We've come to the end of our, our wow, podcast. That was fast. Believe I it. know. It was so and fast. So. Thank you for, for coming in. It's been very inspiring. I, I want to go start a thousand new projects. What was your favorite thing that you learned? Um, I think my favorite <laughs> thing that I learned is just to remember the why you're doing what you're doing, you know, to, to yeah. help the community and to provide in, uh, places for people to volunteer and to participate. And, yeah, and that know. communication and value, I wrote that down because it's so true. It's it. On so many levels, communicating the value, communication and value, it's mm-hmm. its critical to our work. One of the things we didn't ask David that I'm going to ask him to wrap it up is, um, what do you do to take good care of yourself? I sit in the hot tub and have coffee every morning before work. And I love that. Unless there's lightning. That's the only, you what know. Do you do if there's the a, snow's the, awesome. Oh, the snow's the best. Yeah. You're, the water's great. hot. That's true. It's hot. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I'm not on it as often as I would like, but I really love cycling more than anything. Um, oh, that's right. You just... Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do it. I, I like to do it alone. Um, it's a solitary thing for me. It's communing with nature. And especially here on the Cape, because on your bike, you, you, you see there's so much to see. Mm-hmm. One thing I've learned is that every village in every town has a beautiful spot mm-hmm. that is that you wouldn't know mm-hmm. if you weren't off the beaten path. That's right. So I try to do that, but you know, I'm I'm uh, I need to do more uh, self care. More self care. Yeah. yeah, I know. You should. It's hard. You deserve it. You work really Thank hard. You. <laughs> Thank you for all the hard work that you do. Thank you us. guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you again to today's guest, David Keene, Executive Director of the Katuit Center for the Arts. For this episode of the Creative Exchange Podcast, I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Until next time, arts matter. Support for the Creative Exchange Podcast is made possible by Delbrook JKS. Music for the Creative Exchange podcast is the work of Jordan Renzi. Produced in association with Billingsgate Records by Jordan Renzi and Andrew Staker at Big Red Studios in Wellfleet. The Creative Exchange podcast is brought to you by the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod, Provincetown Community Television, and the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in South Yarmouth. In the desert, to the oasis, this time.
This time. 